Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, And before we get into this week's extremely exciting installment of the show, some quick housekeeping notes. First off, I want to announce that the third installment of my new queer pop party, I guess it's not so new anymore if it's the third one, Gorgeous Gorgeous, is going down on Saturday, July 16th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles in the Arts District. I know I've waxed poetic about this before, but guys, this party is so freaking fun. It's just me playing pop bangers all night in the room of the most incredible assortment of queer people and allies from across the spectrum. It is just so much fun. The energy in the room last time was like nothing short of electric. And I mean that genuinely. So that's happening on Saturday, July 16th at Resident. I will post the link to buy tickets in the show notes of this episode and on all our social media channels. And I really hope to see you guys there. I got to meet a bunch of you last time, which was an extra added treat to the whole affair. So if you're in LA, please come out to Gorgeous Gorgeous. Very importantly, I want to announce the winner of our most recent contest. Just to refresh everybody's memory, I had a contest going on where if you posted about Pop Pantheon, shared your favorite episode, shared the podcast to social media, Instagram, Twitter talked about why you liked it, gave it a good a good endorsement, a good little recommendation to your peeps. You were entered in a contest to pick an episode that we drew at random. We drew the winner at random. The winner of that is our dear friend, Tom Geyer. Tom is an active and beloved Pop Pantheon fan and Discord member. So I'm thrilled that he got to be the one to choose this episode. He graciously offered us a few options for who he'd like featured on his episode. And the decision we've come to is, drumroll please, Marina and the Diamonds. Marina and the Diamonds, folks. It's Marina's turn. So we will be working on that. As you guys probably are aware, getting Pop Pantheon episodes together is not exactly the fastest thing, but it's now risen to the top of our list. So we're hoping to get that done for you guys sometime in the short to midterm. (laughs) So thank you so much for everybody who participated and congratulations to Tom. Next up, want to read some reviews that people have left on Apple Podcasts that are my particular favorites of the last week. First comes from Alice B. Louie is the best, and so is his podcast. An absolute gem of a human and so knowledgeable about all our favorite pop girlies. His DJ sets are also unbelievable. We stan. Oh, thank you so much. That's so sweet. From P. Fine, love Louie and this pod so much. The attention to detail and effort put into each episode is astounding. I love learning about my faves on a whole deeper level and the guests are awesome. Leave it to Louie to cover Break My Soul and give us the facts. Quote, homecoming is the greatest live performance, I think, in pop history. It's kind of undebatable. End quote. End quote. It is undebatable. Um, So thank you so much for that review. And finally... TRL Deep Cuts writes, a must listen for pop stands, a proper indexing of pop stardom and influence. What's not to love? An informed and thoughtful host with a great selection of knowledgeable guests. The Christina episode is a personal fave, hoping her new Spanish material can somehow get her to tier two, dot, 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 indeed. Well, I do love her song Santo, I will say, but I don't... I don't know how that's affecting her chart positions. But thank you, everyone, for the ratings and reviews. Please get on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already and leave us a rating or review. It really helps the show. Appreciate you all for doing that. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L O U I E X I V on all channels. Hop in the Discord. 
I know I sound like a broken record, but it's so fun in there. Links for that will be in the show notes and on social media. They're in the bios. I'll post them on stories and check out the Spotify playlists for this and every episode also in those same places. This is an episode on a band that I frankly didn't know too much about aside from being a casual listener before getting into researching for this episode, but turns out they're an absolutely fascinating and integral part of early 80s pop history, the intersection of rock and pop, the intersection of bands and electronic music, of dance music, of MTV, of visuals. My God, one of the most influential music video artists of the early 80s, and just a really good time to listen to. So without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon Duran Duran. I've posited a bunch of times on this podcast that pop stardom as we know it today came into being in the early 1980s. A confluence of factors like advances in studio technology, innovators like Michael Jackson and Madonna leaning into more maximalist and less genre-specific musical choices, and most importantly, the launch of MTV turning the pursuit of hit records into a 360-degree enterprise helped codify what pop sounds and looks like in the modern age. One act that both helped create these templates and utilize them to great commercial advantage in this period was British band Duran Duran, whose inventive fusion of rock and roll and dance music, signature sartorial and visual flair, and groundbreaking use of music videos helped power them into one of the most successful run of hits in the first half of that decade. But while derided as flavor of the month teen pop fluff by the critical establishment during their initial burst of fame, over the last 40 plus years, Duran Duran has proven themselves not just as one of the defining pop acts of the genre's most crucial decade and beyond, but as highly influential musicians whose sound and presentation continues to serve as inspiration to countless subsequent pop acts from across the spectrum. Duran Duran began forming in Birmingham, England in 1978 when friends, bass player John Taylor, and keyboardist and producer Nick Rhodes decided to start making music together. The group went through numerous lineup changes over the next few years, but by 1980 had become a quintet, featuring guitarist Andy Taylor, drummer Roger Taylor, and lead singer and lyricist Simon LeBon, a drama school student with an alluring vocal timber, bold rock star charisma, and a striking personal style. It's been rumored LeBon showed up to his audition in Pink Leopard print pants, if that gives you a sense of what I'm talking about. With this lineup in place, the band played shows across the UK before fairly quickly landing a deal with EMI Records, who released their self-titled debut album in 1981. The music on Duran Duran whipped numerous late 70s pop movements like the glam rock of T-Rex, the art pop of David Bowie, punk bands like The Clash, and even the sounds of American disco into a fresh, distinctively early 80s melange. The record became a huge hit in the UK and Australia, featuring smashes like Planet Earth, Careless Memories, and the number five peaking Girls on Film. Their unique visual style, too, now often considered to be part of the quote-unquote new romantic wave and featuring coiffed hair, suits with Breton shirts, and the errant scarf tied around their heads proved integral to their early success, as did their controversial music videos with the racy Girls on Film video containing, among other things, depictions of BDSM and getting banned by the BBC, which only made them more enticing to the teenagers who made up their fan base. Girls on film, too much later. Girls on film. Girls on film. 
Duran Duran's nearly overnight success in the UK, however, was not duplicated here in the States, where none of their singles even charted. They were also quickly pegged by the music press as a prefab boy band who relied on gimmicks and good looks rather than traditional music talent for their success, a largely unfair take that would nonetheless haunt their legacy for decades to come. The group quickly began work on the music that would comprise their follow-up record, 1982's Rio. Here, they took the sound of the first album widescreen, creating an indelibly lively dance rock album with relentless tempos, big guitar riffs, arpeggiated synthesizers and dance beats, multi-tracked, uber-stylized vocals from Le Bon, and most importantly, huge, undeniable pop hooks. The music was carnal and lusty and decadent, emblematic of the broader cultural mood of the era. Rio again proved to be an instant smash in the UK, but Duran Duran continued to struggle to connect with American audiences until the release of a series of slightly tweaked remixes of the album's songs by David Kirschenbaum brought them more in line with American radio. And more memorably, their iconic music videos for the title track and lead single Hungry Like the Wolf began to gain traction on MTV. The video for the latter, often cited as one of the most seminal of the format, was filmed on location in Sri Lanka, paid homage to Raiders of the Lost arc and plays almost like a short film complete with a quote-unquote plot of sorts and lush cinematic visual style. Hungry Like the Wolf almost single-handedly expanded the parameters of what pop stars could do with their music videos and caught on with teens who were increasingly turning to MTV as a hub for music taste. The video went on to win both the inaugural VMA for Best Music Video, the first Grammy Award for Best Short Form Music Video, and helped turn the song, Rio, and the band into juggernaut successes stateside, where Wolf peaked at number three on the Hot 100 and Duran Duran became one of the biggest new pop acts of the 1980s. Riding the momentum of Rio's international success, the band quickly followed it up with 1983's Seven and the Ragged Tiger, which featured the Hot 100 number one, The Reflex, number three, Union of the Stake, and number 10, New Moon on Monday. They continued their hot streak through 1984 and 85 with the live album Arena and the one-off singles The Wild Boys and the title track for the James Bond film A View to a Kill, the latter of which peaked at number one on the Hot 100. This music continued to portray Duran Duran as gloriously randy bon vivants who treaded the line between traditional rock band and dance pop stars, but the band encountered both exhaustion and a number of shakeups in the middle part of this decade that saw Andy Taylor and Roger Taylor depart the group and created a three-year gap between Tiger and their official follow-up, 1986's Notorious. A collaboration with disco and pop super producer Niall Rogers, that record was a market aesthetic shift which further centered their dance instincts and found the band attempting a weightier and more mature sound and image, a pivot that was meant to transition them out of the lightweight tag placed on them by music critics. While Notorious featured the number two peaking title track, the record presented a sharp commercial decline for the band, debuting outside the top 10 in both the UK and the US and featuring only modest follow-up hits. The next two records, 1988's Big Thing and 1990's Liberty, were even less successful. By the dawn of the 1990s, where music and pop stardom were in a state of unprecedented flux and expansion, it seemed that Duran Duran was over, left to be remembered forever as the frivolous teeny bopper fluke of the 80s that their most ardent critics had pegged them as. 
But unexpectedly, and with not much else to lose, 1993's Duran Duran, also known as The Wedding Album, a record which updated their sound to reflect the smooth electronics of this period and contained some of their strongest songwriting since their early work, became an unexpected smash when the singles, the groovy, seductive Come Undone and the ballad Ordinary World crossed over from alternative to pop radio, peaking at number seven and three, respectively, on the Hot 100. The Wedding Album stands to this day as one of the most surprising comeback albums of all time. It helped both rejuvenate the band, but also kicked off a reassessment of their legacy by critics and the general public. The record proved once and for all that Duran Duran were not just an early 80s fad, but instead consummate musicians who could evolve with the times on the back of what had always been their true strong suit, sturdy songcraft. Since the mid-90s, while they've never again matched the commercial success of the Wedding Album, Duran Duran has released eight more albums through 2021's Future Past and continues to be a huge touring act, filling arenas the world over. Duran Duran has sold over 100 million albums worldwide, making them one of the most successful bands of all time. They've had 30 top 40 singles in the UK and 14 top 10s, as well as 11 top 10s here in the United States, which includes two number one hits. They've won two Brit Awards, two Grammy Awards, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the MTV VMAs, and in an honor that has brought their career and relationship to the rock critical establishment full circle, this year, Duran Duran was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Here with me to discuss the career and ever-evolving legacy of Duran Duran is journalist and author of the 33 and a third book, Duran Duran's Rio, Annie Zaleski. Uh all right, so I am here with author and journalist and author of a incredible 33 and a third book on Duran Duran's Rio. It's Annie Zaleski. Annie, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I would say that you are probably the most ideal person we could have this conversation with. You wrote the book on Duran Duran. And my mind pretty much at any given day is like 50% Duran Duran and then 50% whatever else I have to do on a given day. So yeah, so I'm, I'm Taylor. I'm made. I was born for this. I'm so glad to hear it because frankly, this has been an education for me. I didn't know that much about Duran Duran. They're a little before my time. So it was a fun deep dive for me to get to go back and listen to all the records and do some research and do some reading, but I'm definitely excited to have someone here who lives and breathes this band. <laughs> and I wanted to offer you a major congratulations because they just got inducted into the Hall of Fame. I, it is so overdue. I am so over the moon and I'm, I'm based in Cleveland too. And so once, you know, everything gets finalized and they're in, it's like, you know, I can pop on down and, you know, take goofy pictures next to the signatures and, you know, but yeah, so it's, I, I'm so thrilled, you know, like I said, and, and I think this episode will underscore why they deserve to be in the Rock Hall. And so, yeah, it's just such good news. Yeah, I agree. And I was going to ask you, like, what does the induction into the Hall of Fame say about how Duran Duran's like critical and cultural standing has evolved since they entered the scene in the early 80s? I mean, that's such a big question. I think that it's everything, honestly. When they came out in the early 80s, they were positioned as a teen band. They were positioned as a pop band. And they were also positioned as a video band. And today, those terms don't necessarily mean anything negative. But back then, that absolutely was kind of a pejorative term. You know, they were definitely seen as a band that was for teenage girls. And music geared toward teenage girls is always sort of denigrated because the tastes of teenage 
girls and what teenage girls like are very rarely respected. And so they were just sort of seen as this sort of overexposed pop band and nothing could have been further from the truth. They were great musicians. You know, you listen to live bootlegs from even their earliest days and there was really something special there. You know, it was interesting because when you look at some of the archival research about them, you know, they made it sound like the band was on MTV and they could barely play their instruments and they were just sort of this prefab band. They were all really great musicians. And I I really think now we have, I think, more of a language to kind of talk about what 80s music meant and what New Wave meant and that it should be taken more seriously. You know, I think a Mm -hmm. lot of times people saw, oh, they're wearing goofy clothing or, oh, they have goofy haircuts. And people were like, oh, that can't mean anything. They can't be serious. You know, they can't be serious musicians. And I think people are now really starting to be able to give it more of a critical eye and see how it kind of moved the cultural needle. And so I think Duran Duran has definitely been swept up in that as well. That's incredible. You know, it makes me think a little bit about a subject that comes up frequently on the show, which is the idea of optimism and the sort of growing notion within the critical community that pop should be taken seriously and that it actually isn't a knock to call something pop or it isn't a knock to, as you mentioned, play towards teenage girls. Like we should assess that music with the same integrity and seriousness that we would address anything. And I think it's fun to talk about Duran Duran in this context because I think they're in an extra difficult situation presenting as a band. It it kind of puts them in a position where they're going to not just be stacked up next to other quote unquote more like overtly pop acts of their era, maybe Madonna, Cyndi Lauper, whomever, but also they're going to get stuck in the sort of rockist assessment of music where they're like, are you as good as you too? Are you as good as the Rolling Stones? Are you David Bowie? Are you whomever? And I'm sure that that had also an effect on the way that they were perceived during their heyday. Well, absolutely. And I mean, what's so funny is that if people were actually sort of listening, A, to the band and listening to their influences, you would never think that. Andy Taylor loved ACDC. Andy Taylor loved Eddie Van Halen. Andy Taylor loved all of the kind of the British guitar heroes, Keith Richards. Those are quote unquote, what people say are really rock acts. But like the rest of the band, they were into Bowie. They were into Roxy music. They were into glam. You know, they love talking heads. They love craft work and they love disco as well. Mm. So they had really kind of voracious musical tastes. They love soul, you know, they loved Motown. They had broader interests that I think a lot of people really gave them credit for. People just, I think, kind of weren't listening. I think a lot of times too, people just kind of saw Duran Duran in one way and didn't want to have evidence refuting how they kind of viewed the band. So I think I'd like to just sort of zoom us out a little bit before we get into the actual formation of the band and just take a little read of the room of kind of like the music and pop scene that they're emerging into because I think that's sort of an important thing. So if you had to just kind of broad strokes, what are some of the major movements or subgenres of pop, if pop is like kind of mm-hmm. the all-encompassing term for popular music that are relevant to Duran Duran that are sort of bubbling up prior to them forming? So I think definitely glam. And this was yeah. such a UK phenomenon, I would say like early 70s to kind of the mid 70s. And so that I think is the most striking movement. And so, you know, you had David Bowie. Rebel, rebel, put on your dress. Rebel, rebel, your face is a mess. And T-Rex. Roxy music, the earlier stuff. And 
that of course was like amazing, beautiful costumes and huge guitars and very glamorous, funny haircuts that were colorful. <laughs> it was a very British movement. It didn't really translate that right. well to America. And so it was very, very British. visual, which is a huge influence on Duran Duran. Yes, that's absolutely. It really made an impression on them that, hey, there were these musicians that were playing this music. There was a visual element and a visual aesthetic and a very striking instrumental aesthetic. Would it be safe to say that glam reinvented rock values in that way, in the sense that like allowed an element of fun into the mix that maybe the foundational 60s rock groups were sort of taken so seriously and their music was laden with a lot of like deep cultural meaning and there was sort of a almost like a poetic nature put onto it. I wonder if glam was sort of a moment in which rock got allowed to be something more flashy and frivolous and fun. I would agree with that. You know, and I think also so many of the artists too were really kind of playing around with gender a little mm. bit. There were these musicians coming out potentially wearing makeup and potentially wearing these heels basically, like heeled boots. It wasn't necessarily as masculine as I think some of the right. 60s music was. And so I think right. that also kind of said, hey, you know, you can play rock and roll and you don't have to play this manly man, you know, wear like a suit or wear flannel shirt or things like that. Flares, I guess, would be kind of mm. at the time. You could wear a green lame suit, you know, <laughs> you could you could wear like gold high heeled boots. So it really right. broadened people's ability what rock and roll could be, I guess, in a mm. sense. And musically, you talked about the big guitars. Like, what are some of the other big musical aesthetics of glam? I think really strident, strong beats, too. It's very, very heavy. When you think of, like, Slade and you think of T-Rex, there are these, like, massive drums. Cars are moving, but you also had a very strong rhythm section. It was danceable, but it was also hard hitting. Everything was amplified in glam. And then the vocals too, you know, maybe a little bit, I say sleazy, but I don't mean that like, <laughs> like subject mean. matter. It's like, mm -hmm. it's a little bit dangerous. It's a little bit mm. attitude laden. So, Sexy maybe is even yeah, a good word. That would be absolutely. And a lot of the glam stuff is also just a little bit obscure. You know, you're kind of like, mm. what are they talking about? You know, and <laughs> Simon Le Bon loves surrealism and loves things mm -hmm. that were a little bit moody it's funny because he loved jim morrison and so you kind of have that poetry uh, right before the glam comes yeah in. jim morrison actually seems a little bit like a glam north star maybe in some ways or like a pre-glam you know he had a little bit of that vibe the androgyny this sort of sex forwardness the the swagger that's what you know the you swagger about, yeah the way he's kind of you know slithering and he has those mysterious yeah. lyrics there was something going on and you're mm. like i don't know do i want to meet him on a dark alley i don't know what about New Wave? I mean, I know that Duran Duran often gets called a New Wave band, and New Wave is a movement that began in the 70s. Like, what about that? What was going on in sort of New Wave prior to Duran Duran? So it's funny. I am of the camp that Duran Duran get lumped into New Wave, but they are not necessarily New Wave. Okay. All right. Tell me about <laughs> this that. This is just me. People might not agree with me. Well, okay. so it's interesting because Duran Duran, they started in the late 70s, so they came out of punk, but then post-punk started right away. They had this kind of interesting balance. They're starting in a 
emerging and evolving as music itself was evolving in the UK. I mean, mm. so obviously, you know, the Sex Pistols, everyone knows the Sex Pistols. They were very much like, we are DIY. We are going to make things happen. We are going to be rabble rousers and change the status quo. But sure. after that, then you basically had all of these musicians building off of that. You know, there were so many offshoots. You know, you had gothic rock offshoots. You know, maybe you had The Cure, who were very kind of punkish, but very dark punk. You had Joy Division, right. very similar. You had Bauhaus eventually as well, who were maybe a little bit more smoldering. You had the pop element. You had Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe. You had kind of the pub rock that was very much focused on songwriting, focused on concise pop songs. And then you had other things that were coming up from other places. You had disco. There were so much American disco came over to the UK. And then, of course, you had craft work. You know, there was such an interesting melting pot of movements and sounds. So that just really influenced so many of the bands. I mean, the Human League. I mean, I think that's another good example. They're big fans yeah. of the Human League. They started in 77, I believe. And they were this like very industrial music that was very grayscale. By the end of the 1979 into 1980, they were getting a little bit poppier, a little bit post-punk, but a little bit electronic as well. almost difficult to say well you know you are this one genre you are this one sound because there were so many different sounds going on at the same time and there was so much originality and everything was really mingling and i mm. think that's one of the biggest stories about duran duran when you kind of look at you know their early music especially their first couple records is that there was just so much creativity i mean as a music fan you're just like wow that's an embarrassment of riches there's so <laughs> many awesome like where's my time machine i want to go back and see all of these bands yeah this really does sound fun you know it's funny because i often think about the early 80s as like a big bang for pop as we know Absolutely. it today you know that was the moment where all of the major pop stars we think of as sort of the titans of the genre emerge from and I often think pop really is about in its modern incarnation the ability to cherry pick from lots of different subgenres and sort of like throw it all into the pot together I mean if you think about Michael Jackson as perhaps like the emblematic yes. pop star what were Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones doing they were essentially going like we're gonna take this from disco we're going to take this from New Wave. We're going to take this from Rock. We're going to take this from whatever. And it's all going to be like at its most maximalist version of itself. So it makes a lot of sense that you're talking about the late 70s being a convergence point where there was like a lot of different subgenres dominating at the same time or operating at the same time because it was almost like they were all coming together and then the sort of big pop stars, which I think I would in a way lump Duran Duran in in some ways of these early 80s acts that were pulling on a lot of different scenes in order to create something new and original. Absolutely. I would completely agree with that. I mean, you mentioned Michael Jackson. I mean, you know, he had Off the Wall, which was, you know, so disco oriented, but also right. brought in other threads. But then, yeah, yeah, by Thriller, he was working with these amazing musicians. And, yeah. you know, you look at Madonna, too, you know, her evolution, you know, her yeah. early stuff. You had everybody, which was kind of punkish. Right. Or burning up, for instance. Exactly. Like yeah. that really awesome. And I love those tracks 
particularly. But then mm -hmm. she was like uber pop, but she was drawing yeah. on so many different things. The musicians and those artists that were so big then were so interested in music and they were so open-minded. They were willing to say, hey, this is really cool. How can I make this my own? I think that's why a lot of those records stand up today because they Agreed. were so strikingly original. What about this term new romantics that comes up a lot around them? What do you think about that one? You know, so this one I agree with. And it's so funny because the band, they're lucky that they kind of escaped that tag. So the new mm. romantics, this was this short-lived movement that was 1980, 81. David Bowie was lumped into it a little bit around Lodger and Ashes to Ashes. It was like this movement in London and it was these bands that were coming out from post-punk. They were like bands that are like, I want to dress up. I want to go out. I'm going to mm. dress up to the nines and makeup it was like i'm gonna look amazing when i go out you know if right. punk was like whatever i'm just gonna throw on right. stuff maybe i'll rip up a t-shirt new romantics you looked like you dressed to the nines but it wasn't mm. like your parents being dressed to the nines duran duran they wore frilly shirts you know there was pirate wear which is ridiculous but that's all how you can got to describe it there were sort pirate of like wear. sashes <laughs> everywhere and scarves and i think even now the band was like i know like what were we doing i know you know they they. i they think they looked band. incredible so i don't know if they regret it i was at the best time going back through all of their looks and stuff. oh i think they look amazing they look fabulous they look absolutely yeah. fabulous boy george gotcha. was also a jason i should mention that ah so uh, okay i think that's helpful for people yes. because his look is so iconic that exactly I think people can... okay so let's talk about duran duran can you sort of give us broad strokes how the band forms and comes together into its not final form, but final form for their first album. Like how, how does that whole story work? So basically John Taylor and Nick Rhodes, childhood friends formed Duran Duran in Birmingham, England. John Taylor was in art school. I think he lasted maybe a year. And then he was like, let's give this music thing a try. And so they named themselves after the character, Dr. Durand Durand from Barbarella. I should say that the mm. movie Barbarella, the sci-fi <laughs> film. Have you ever heard of a young scientist named the Durand Durand? But they called themselves Duran Duran. And so their first singer was actually famous or future famous was Stephen Duffy, who was later known as Tin Tin, who had some songs. He was in the Lilac Time and then also had a hit in the 80s with Kiss Me. So this is like the mid-70s-ish. No, about. so this is 1978. So one of the other stories about Duran Duran is just how quickly they all came together. And so basically, right. eventually, they met drummer Roger Taylor, who was also from Birmingham. No relation to John Taylor. I'll say that. Okay, um, good to know. But he was in a punk band called The Scent Organs. And the stories vary about how they all met. But anyway, they all kind of hooked up and they all really shared very similar influences. Mm -hmm. They were very much into disco. They were very much into Bowie, Roxy music, things like that. So Roger Taylor, John Taylor, Nick Rhodes were sort of the nucleus of Duran Duran. And they still had some more people cycling in and out. There was a singer named Andy Wicket who was in the band for a little bit. You know, so things weren't working out. You know, they had different lineups. They were playing shows. So they were actually trying to make it work, kind of playing colleges, art shows. Finally, though, in 1980, things started to get a little bit more serious. So as the legend goes, there was an ad that was put in Melody Maker, one of the UK newsweeklies looking for a guitarist, basically. And that drew the attention of Andy Taylor, who was from Newcastle. Andy had a lot of experience. Andy Taylor was actually on tour in the 70s. So he actually had a lot of musical experience. So he came down and tried out. 
in Birmingham, there was a club called the Rum Runner, which was basically integral to Duran Duran's evolution. It became their practice space, their headquarters. They worked there. Their managers at the time owned it. So Andy Taylor came down. He saw one of the cool Rum Runner nights. They would do theme nights like Bowie nights or Roxy Music nights. And he was just like, these are my people. I'm sold. And so he joined the band. A month later, they met Simon Lebon. So mm. there was a barmaid who worked at the Rum Runner who happened to be Simon's ex-girlfriend. And uh. she recommended him. And so he mm. came to his tryout. As legend has it, wearing pink pants with leopard print. He was a drama student, but he was also in a couple of bands that really weren't going anywhere. But he had acting experience too. And basically they all hit it off. Legend has it they wrote a song within days of meeting each other. I think stories always vary. It's either the first rehearsal or, you know, he came back the next day and he had this infamous lyric book and he brought lyrics and they all played together and it all worked out. Whatever it is, May 1980, he tried out. They joined in their first show as this quintet was July 1980 at the Rum Runner. And from there, it was pretty much like off to the races. What was the synergy about, do you think? What was the magic of that particular lineup? Why did they all connect? You know, I mean, it's it's interesting because they all have different backgrounds. You know, mm -hmm. they all share Bowie and Roxy music. I feel like I've said their names already like 15 times. That was really the base. But everybody had different complementaries of influences. I interviewed Andy for my book, and it was really striking because he said, I brought the Jeff Beck, Nick Rhodes brought the Brian Eno, and kind of combined it in somewhere in the middle. That's where we kind of met. And I thought that was just so brilliant because that absolutely is what sums it up. You mm. had John Taylor and Roger Taylor who were super into disco, which means they practiced a lot. And they're like, we need to be a really tight rhythm section. We're going to practice, practice, mm. practice. You had Nick Rhodes was kind of, you know, a self-taught keyboardist. So he was doing all these cool experimental things based off of Brian, you know, and Kraftwerk and Human League. You had Andy, who was this really veteran musician who brought the British rock element, but also really understood intuitively what makes a great song. And then mm. you had Simon, who had charisma, who had just a really kind of interesting voice and was very enthusiastic and just has a presence about him. It's that alchemy that sometimes you can't really explain that you can see that everybody was complementary in, in certain ways and they brought enough difference that it caused some friction and some magic and you were able to kind of make some good music. So they finally get into this final lineup, as you said, in 1980 and things start to kind of take off fast. How do they move from like creating demos and maybe you can talk a little bit about what the demos are like to getting this deal with EMI? How does that story go? So the story is extremely short. People sometimes I think forget to, if you're in the UK, the UK is small. The UK yeah. is not like America where, you know, you right. have a lot to conquer. The UK is small. So they play their first show in July. They end up going to the studio. They were actually going to self-release a 45 and they recorded it. They had 45 labels even. So they were playing some shows around, things like that. They ended up getting on a tour in November for a musician named Hazel O'Connor. They had just been playing around and gotten mm. good buzz that by the time they went on that tour, there were A&R people sniffing around. They would be going to the mm. shows, going to the shows. And their management at the time was very savvy. They were calling people and saying, you need to check out our band. You need to check out our band. They were being very proactive about saying there's something special here. And so they ended up EMI, basically one of their EMI people came and was following around and just who had actually signed the Sex Pistols. Oh my God. Duran Duran liked EMI too, because they had Queen. And so EMI right. also had very much, had a name and had pedigree. And the Beatles, right? 
Yes, exactly. I read that that was a big draw for them was that they like couldn't say no to the Beatles record label. Yeah, and so they ended up signing with EMI by December. So they get this record deal and they set about writing and recording their debut album. When I was listening to this first record, I kept thinking about the intersection of sort of rock history and technology. Like there's something about this music that feels like it sits at an important nexus point in both of those two stories. And there's a real pace to it. I mean, Rio really is like this, but they have a real like propulsive dance quality to them that takes them away from more of self-serious rock of the 60s and maybe early 70s. And there's something about the pursuit of a pleasure-filled romp, but like in a sleazy kind of night vibe. Like when I listen to this music, I just think about like a bunch of guys on the prowl a little bit that like is sort of embodied somehow in this sound. I don't know if that resonates for you. I love that. I love that description because all the members of Duran Duran were extremely young at this point. I mean, they were basically kids and the Rum Runner, their headquarters is basically a dance club. So that was kind of their life. I mean, if you listen to their debut record, this is the type of thing. It's like, hey, we're going out to the club. Let's turn this on. You know, let's exactly. This This is like 3 a.m. music, a lot of it to me. Dance music is what they wanted to do. And, you know, dance music was popular in the UK. You know, they all wanted to have that influence from Chic Mm. and they love Giorgio Moroder. To them, that was sort of the music that was cool, was all this dance music. So that's absolutely what they were going for. I'm intrigued, you know, just in the context of the sort of the raucous, poppist thing we were talking about earlier about their embrace of some of these genres or subgenres that are historically maligned and were really kind of out of fashion in the early 80s. Disco in particular, I mean, if we're talking about a chic influence, we're post the disco demolition night. We're sort of in this era where yeah. this stuff is really frowned upon and like people are pivoting away from it, including Nile Rodgers, you know. So it's interesting to me that they would openly acknowledge that as an influence in this period I just am trying to get into their heads about like how they saw themselves and where they were trying to position themselves as a band and as a pop act. I just find that very interesting. And I actually love the way that this record embraces both rock tradition, but also some of these other more maligned sort of seen as frivolous pop movements of the later 70s. I mean, that's such a function of how in the UK, disco is viewed so much differently than it was in the US. Because you're right, Right. in the US, there was just so much homophobia and there was so much racism involved in the way disco was sort of maligned. And in the UK, they were like, this is cool. UK pop music was always kind of more diverse and Mm. more open to different sounds than the US. In hindsight, you know, it makes sense why if there are bands saying, we love disco, we're coming to America. America would be like, what are you doing? Because yeah, by 1981, 
one in the eyes of so many americans disco was over disco was dead disco was uncool even though pop music in 1981 in america was a snooze totally That's such a good point. There's an element of sleaze in here. And I mean that in like a fun way. Like there's something sleazy about it. The members of Duran Duran have been very open that when they were younger, you know, they liked the party. And I think that's, you know, that's been covered. I think for the longest time, that was all everyone wanted to focus on was like, so, you know, what sort of drugs were you guys doing? And now what's nice is that it's almost the least interesting thing about them. But they well, were I mean young. in a fun way. It yeah. makes you want to go out and be bad yeah. a little bit. No, because it's 3 a.m. music. You put on Planet Earth or Girls on Film, and it is a little bit like you can almost get outside of yourself. You could almost say, you know, for six minutes, I'm going to forget about whatever straight-laced day job I have, whatever thing, and I'm going to have fun. And it is. It's funny because I say pop music in 1981 was kind of a snooze. Dance music was where all Mm. the fun was happening. Dance music was where all the sleaze was. Mm. I mean, because, you know, so many of these dance clubs, you know, the band went to New York. They went to Studio 54. Everyone knows what Studio 54 was like. They were going to all the glamorous places. And everyone knows the glamorous places had kind of a darker and seedier side. Yeah. I know. I love that you keep bringing up the dance movements of both the 70s and the 80s because a lot of these songs have both sort of the slap guitar guitar, funk guitar of Niall Rogers, 70s disco chic and everything that he made. Paired with kind of the 80s synth pop vibe of like a New Order or a Human League and then of course kind of the rock forwardness of a Roxy music. I really see that whole connection together here in this music. It's such an interesting mix of like, you know, we have almost like disco guitars, you have that disco beat, but then you have these lyrics that are basically like a mission statement. Like, hey, we're here. Like things are changing, come along with us, get used to it. I love that you say things are changing because the other sort of big piece I sort of pulled out of this just in like a just emotional reaction is sort of like a response to a fastly changing world. I don't know why that kept coming into my mind. Like obviously the 80s were like a huge moment of technological advance, a moment of big change. For some reason, this music almost feels like a response or a coping with like the pace of change in the modern world of technology. I think so. And synthesizers and keyboards were coming out fast and furious at this time. You know, when Nick Rhodes was very into whatever new synthesizers were coming out and the new technology. And so there is that element. And they were interested in, we don't want to do something that's been done before. Let's see how we can push things forward. You know, we don't want to duplicate what our idols did. We don't want to duplicate what our heroes did. We want to do something a little bit different. We want to be creative. So I think that's a very fair assessment. Yeah. and, And it permeates the whole album. I mean, there's that song, Sound of thunder that i think contains a lyric that says the world moves so fast i might fly off i noted that because i was just like that feels like somewhat of a thesis statement for some of this music Let's talk a little bit about Girls on Film, which I think is kind of the emblematic song from this record. Talk to me about that song. What is that song about? And is that the prototypical Duran Duran single in some ways? And if so, how? Girls on Film, you know, had been hanging around since the late 70s in a totally different form. Girls on Film, little bit of girls on film. 
This one I think is a little bit more of almost a commentary on style over substance. Mm. The idea of girls on film, you know, models and spoofing it a little bit, satirizing a little bit. But it's also just a really good pop song. You have the explosive chorus. You have Simon LeBond coming out. You have that chorus hook. You have that pre-chorus going into it that's kind of building up the tension, building up to it. It's an amazing groove. I mean, you hear the song and you're like, I want to go dancing right now. A hundred percent. I feel like there's a lot of vocal stacking that goes on, especially yes. on the hook. That feels very signature. Yes. And Colin Thurston, who produced the record, who's sadly no longer with us, talked a little bit about how he put Simon's vocals together. And he had interesting ways of capturing everything. It's like multiple Simons, but it's very inviting. I mean, that's the thing is you listen to him sing and you're like, okay, this is cool. It's not harsh. You can tell that he sang growing up because he has a very enticing voice and an empathetic voice. Yes. And the vocal stacking is a real pop thing, which you know, and I mean this is yeah. a positive way. I mean, when I think of great vocal stacking, I think of ABBA. And then I also think of like Janet. That's one of the things that positions them in a pop lineage, perhaps even more so than the traditional rock star lineage. It's sort of like, how do we make the song reach its maximum potential and less about, even though they had great musicality and bona fides as musicians, there was an approach to some of this music that feels distinctively pop to me. And I mean that with the utmost respect <laughs> and in no means to demean anything about it. Let's talk a little bit for a second about the Girls on Film music video because obviously we've touched a little bit on the fact that like the visual elements of this band are a humongous part of what yeah. distinguishes them. They're kind of formative visual act because the other big thing that's changing in the 80s is... MTV is about to come yeah. into being bands and pop acts and all of these musicians are going to have to do a lot more in order to like fill out this 360 degree version of pop stardom so I feel like Duran Duran was kind of on the early side of this wave and sort of understood this intrinsically before it even became like de rigueur and this video was a lightning rod of controversy at the time as far as I understand it. So can you talk a little bit about the Girls on Film video? Absolutely. And I should say that it's so funny because you're completely right. Because music videos were so popular in the UK, Duran Duran completely understood music videos. This is what we have to do. Girls on Film, if people haven't seen it, basically, long and the short of it is the band is playing. There's like... I don't even, a boxing ring, I guess, in front of yeah. them. And there's various <laughs> things that happen, depending on which right. version of the record you're watching. The X-rated version, there's things like mud wrestling. There's suggestive women on a pole that has whipped cream on it. There's sumo wrestlers and there's nudity. I mean, basically that's what it yes. is. And then, sure. you know, the shorter version, there's people that are just kind of in fancy wear dancing around at some point. And honestly, you look at it now and you're like, there's no yeah. way if this came out now, it's that sort of, risque and out there it would cause a part of my friend shitstorm now yeah be like completely it's it's just that out there right. but it did in dance clubs girls on film was a sensation because people right. are like it's after midnight we're totally off our heads this is amazing right. so that's on purpose the the risqueness yes. is, is intentional obviously it was intentional they were trying to cause a stir yes. as all great pop stars <laughs> should exactly and you know what ed the thing is it completely worked and you're right i mean i believe the video got banned by the bbc but it got them press i mean if you start looking and 
fall of 81. Duran Duran's debut record came out in June of 81 and fall of 81 in America. You have press talking about their taboo music video and it's like it was called pornographic. It did what it was supposed to do. It got the band attention. Like if you were going to write the pop star (laughs) manual controversial, risque, sexual music video kind of seems like, hey, who did that better than the ultimate pop star of all time? Miss Madonna, you know, a few years later, mastered this technique. But I was so intrigued by their instinctual, and you've helped me understand why, their instinctual understanding of how this was the wave of the future of pop stardom was to have a very defined visual aesthetic and to also stir controversy (laughs) using that visual aesthetic was kind of like one of the definitive qualities and has to this day continues to be one of the definitive qualities of pop stardom, period. And they play a serious role in inventing that trope. Absolutely. And, you know, you think about, you know, because they're big Queen fans, Bohemian Rhapsody came out in the mid 70s, you know, was iconic. And then you had Kate Bush, who was on EMI, their same label, just before them, also making iconic videos. And so, and obviously those were not necessarily controversial, but they understood, okay, you need to have something that's not just us on a stage playing music, which is what every American band did. You know, early MTV is like bands. How do we do this here? Let's just play our songs. It's another point in sort of the way that they tread the line between rock and pop, which like seems like a constant theme. Like they really operate like a pop act instinctually, even though they also come from all of these rock lineages. And, you know, it also loops back to our earlier part of the conversation, which is like maybe at the time had them taken less seriously than they might have wanted to have been. But now looking back, they seem prescient and the inventors of so many tropes that we now take for granted in a sense. So this record is received quite differently commercially in the two marketplaces. This record, from what I can understand, makes them stars in the UK, but really doesn't make too much of a splash stateside. Is that an accurate representation? That is accurate. They were stars in the UK. They were actually pretty big in Australia Mm -hmm. because they were able to send videos down there. You talk about being Mm. prescient. In America, it didn't chart. The record didn't chart in 1981. They were big on the dance charts. So, I mean, like basically because of Girls on Film and Planet Earth, they were really big in dance clubs. And at the end of the year, they made waves there. And some of the hipper radio stations played them. You know, college radio played them. You know, they were sort of a cult band, basically. I think it makes sense why it connected in the UK based on everything you've said so far. It stands in so many UK specific lineages it makes sense and they're like hometown heroes but what do you think prevented the music on this initial record from connecting in America so many different things I mean I think first off what people like to say is that you know when a certain decade it takes a couple years for it to get started I think Mm -hmm. in the 80s that's 100% true Mm. so when Duran Duran came out in 1981 New Wave was seen as still like and I I use that term loosely even like bands like the police and U2 were kind of viewed with suspicion at that Uh, point to make it in America you had to have a radio hit mm. radio was so middle of the road bland at that point people in the Midwest like this would not fly I mean Duran Duran came out wearing their new romantic gear, somewhere in makeup, <laughs> dyed hair. I've, I've said it. They look like they were literally from another planet. You know, in right. the middle of the Midwest next to, you know, Air Supply and Rick Springfield. This was like completely different. And so America wasn't ready for this. America was not mm. ready for dance music. I mean, one of the things that's so indebted to Bowie, Bowie, as popular as he was, didn't necessarily have mainstream hits in America. He had a few, but he was not the hit maker that you might think he is by how big of a reputation he had. In America, bands like Gary Newman had a hit. Blondie had some hits. And that was basically it. It took until 1982 for like the Human League and Soft Cell to kind of start getting played. 
What Duran Duran was doing was just so far removed from anything on the rock charts and the pop charts. They just didn't fit in. Okay, so they have this establishing record in the UK, as you said, not really making big noise over here. How do you understand Duran Duran's ambitions going into Rio, their second album? Like, are they kind of going like, okay, we need to figure out how to crack into the American market? Are they seeing themselves as wanting to be the biggest band on earth? Like, what are their ambitions in this period? Duran Duran did come to America, so they toured in the fall. And so they did make right. some inroads in, in fall of 81. By the time they went back to the UK in late 81, they had a bunch of songs for Rio already percolating. They were always extremely, extremely ambitious. Mm. They very famously said very, very early on, we want to play Hammersmith, Odeon, Wembley Arena, Madison Square Garden. We want to do it in sequential years. And they did it. You think about that, you're like, yeah, okay, sure, you're going to do that. That's great. But they literally made that happen. And so they were always extremely ambitious. So Duran Duran sets about creating their second album, Rio. You have literally written a book on this album. (laughs) So... Talk to me a little bit about how they take the elements that we were discussing about the first record, all of the influences, how they put it together and expand that idea in the creation of the second album. You know, one of the things that I think Andy said was, you know, the first record, we were all trying to get to know each other because, I mean, they made it having been a band just a couple months. And then Rio, they had been touring. So they had been touring the world. They'd become in a better band. They were really getting to know each other just as creative people. They were all going in the same direction. Hungry Like the Wolf came together in a day. Like, this is like their iconic song. They were recording in London. They'd been out the night before. They were hungover. They were like, all right, you know, we're going to go to the studio, do demos. And they built the song from everything from the ground up. And I mean, when you're a band at that point, that's a band that's running on all cylinders. That's a band who's just really, everything is working. You understand and you're like, I have something. This works. This is inspiring me. And you just kind of get it done. Let's talk about Hungry Like the Wolf, the band's signature song. Yeah. You said it came together in a day. How would you describe this song? And is this the emblematic Duran Duran song and why? I would say it's their signature song. All of the, I think, very early Duran Duran, when you listen to the songs that really work, every musician and everybody's part has a chance to shine. And, you know, sure. part of that's the mixing. Part of that's the engineering that kind of enables that to happen. But, you know, this song, you basically have, you know, very strong drums from Roger Taylor. <laughs> You have Andy Taylor's guitar riffs were actually very influenced by glam. You have the keyboards, which are go from kind of percolating in the background to having a little bit of atmosphere, which is very signature Nick Rhodes at that time. The bassist, of course, John Taylor, has this bass that's making sure that things are propelled forward. And then you have this fantastic vocal part by Simon. You kind of have the wordless chorus, you know, the do-do-do's. This is a song in which the actual words are even one that's less important than the do 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 it's an energy it's a vibe it's a feeling more so than even the lyrics necessarily and it's the lyrics about pursuit you know about trying to pursue someone and people have said it's about little red riding hood not sure if that's ever been a hundred percent confirmed
you also have this bridge that's just fantastic. That's very dramatic and ominous where, mm. you know, Simon is speak singing hungry like the wolf. Yes. It's a great arrangement too. You know, you listen mm. to the song and it's a very classic verse, chorus, verse, you have the bridge and then you have the denouement. So when we talk yes. about like perfect pop structure, it's a perfectly exactly. pop structure, but then you have all these rock elements in it too. You said pursuit. I thought carnal. I was thinking about it. I listened to it a bunch of times and I was like, you know, it's borderline, not creepy, but a little bit aggressively carnal in a way that you could read as... It's obsession. Yeah, it's a little, almost a little scary <laughs> on some level, the level of carnality and pursuit. Well, and especially on the bridge when he's sort of whispering and you're kind mm -hmm. of like, okay, he's chasing, you know, and that's a little bit like things are ramping up a little bit. Yeah, you and know, he's there like is... horny on a level that's kind of almost operatic. <laughs> I, that's a really great description, actually. That is really funny. It's intense in a way, a little bit. It's a little bit like pursuit as like, should I be afraid? <laughs> Or should this woman be afraid? Definitely not milk toast, Diana Ross and Lionel Richie, Endless Love, which was a hit, you know? I mean, this is no Christopher Cross, let's say no, that. And no, I love no, Christopher no, no. Cross, but... I hate to use this word, and I know that you chafed against it already, but there's a sleaze to it that is... I don't mean this as a knock. I just mean this. Great pop music can be sleazy, but there's something dirty about it in an enticing way, a little underworldy. But it's a knowing wink. It's done with purpose and mm. done very deliberately. Deliberately. And, you know, I think nothing about Duran Duran is not deliberate. They're a very deliberate band. They know what they're doing. Totally. So does that help us understand the rest of the music on this record? I mean, what's funny about it is that it's almost an outlier. Mm. Rio, I mean... I wrote a book on it. I think it's a perfect record. We don't need to say that. It is a joyride. What <laughs> yes. a fun record to listen to. It really like sweeps you up right from the beginning and was so much fun to listen to this album, which I did a couple of times. But it's moody at times. So I think that's what's yes. so interesting about this record is that, you know, you do have Hungry Like the Wolf, which is basically this banger. That's yeah. just this pop banger. And you have Rio too, which is you know, an anthem. You have songs on this like Lonely in Your Nightmare and New Religion, which are these very solemn songs. You have Last Chance on the Stairway, which is about trying to find someone at a party. There's a range of moods to it. There's the like, I'm in pursuit of someone and there's the songs that are like, yeah, I'm just failing miserably at this. Or, you know, I'm trying to convince someone. The protagonists are not necessarily successful, which I think also really makes this record stand oh, out. Oh, interesting. That's a really good point. I love that idea of lustiness without fulfillment as sort of like a driving energy here. What could be more guys in their early 20s on the prowl than that vibe? But also, I love that I could pick up, you know, now that you've helped me understand some of their influences there's kind of like i promise i mean this in a positive way <laughs> glorious excess to the sound of this album nothing is held back it revels in excess sonically and what's so funny about that i mean and part of that was by design rio they had the name of the record before they even had the music really done that revelry and it was exciting and things like that but you know what's interesting is that there wasn't that much 
technology used with this. And I think that's what's so interesting mm. is this what John Taylor told me this. And I heard the record in a new way. And this was like guitar, bass, drums, keyboards. And mm. I hear it. You have a little bit. Like Roger Taylor used Simmons drums, which were kind of the new digital drums at that point. But he also laid them with his analog drum kit. And then, you know, John used fretless bass a little bit, but not everywhere. And I think a lot of that digital technology and those sounds could be almost seen as luxurious because it did sound so different than right. a lot of pop music. So yes. they use it very sparingly. But it is. It's a joyous record. They were wishing things. They're looking for the exotic. They're dreaming big. And I think that's what's so special about that record, too, is that even though when things are sort of failing, it's like, well, you don't know what might be around the corner. There's something going on. You know, there's a lot of mm. hope and optimism to it. Energetic, I kept writing down in my notes. Yeah. Like, this is energetic and it's energizing. What they don't do a lot on this early work, which is interesting in contrast to their big hits in the 90s, is ballads. You know, they're not really yeah. doing ballads. Like, this record has a real pace to it that is relentless in a way that I personally enjoy. But, like, you know, it's I just thought that was an interesting aspect. Like, they don't do, all right, let's pull out the piano and sing a lighters in the air type of ballad. That's not really their vibe. Except Save a Prayer, which is about a one night stand. Close to a ballad, but maybe not quite a full. Right. You know, when you talk about them subverting the form a little bit, it's this beautiful song. And when you listen to the lyrics, it's kind of elevating the one night stand into something totally. romantic. It's not yeah. sleazy, but it's cool. But it could be because you have Hungry Like the Wolf. I mean, maybe they got the sleaze out of their system then. And then, when, you know, <laughs> they consummated it. It's like, okay, turn on the sweetness here. I love the idea of turning early 20s male lustiness yeah. into something operatic. That has stuck with me about this. Like, that's what this album almost feels like to me on some level. You think about why it became so popular. I mean, there's something to that. You know, there's some sensitivity there. That wasn't just rote masculinity. There's right. a lot of vulnerability and there's a lot of sensitivity to this. That just really comes out. And in their androgynous presentation, which I think we yeah. should talk briefly about the videos for Hungry Like a Wolf and Rio, which I think are iconic items from this period, especially the Hungry Like a Wolf video, which is essentially a riff on Indiana Jones, more or less. Yeah. You know, I think that's how it ended up. And they filmed it in Sri Lanka. And it's mm. Simon Laban, and he's pursuing a woman. It's funny because the band members are also pursuing him. So there's like a double sort of meaning because, you know, he's off trying to find this woman and the band's yeah. like, where's Simon? There's kind of that funny layer. I mean, the one thing about Duran Duran's early videos is that as much as they have, you know, they're kind of adventurous, like there's a little bit of humor to it too. There's a little bit of cheekiness. Well, all I could write to myself was, why is a wolf in a jungle? <laughs> It's a good question. It's a good question. <laughs> He's like hacking his way through the jungle, <laughs> trying to get to this woman. Then all of a sudden there's like a gray wolf. I'm like, don't wolves live in like the tundra in Canada? <laughs> I mean, like, I'm no biologist, but <laughs> what is it about these videos that makes them so innovative or makes them such emblems of this early crystallizing of the MTV format? First off, they're like mini movies. They worked right. with Russell Mackay, who had worked with Elton John and Bowie and just really understood how music videos could be elevated as an art form. And they had Simon who was comfortable in front of the camera. So they really understood. They're like, we need to make our videos stand out. Let's make them mini movies. And so there was a lot of care taken into filming them too. Mm -hmm. They were treated like they were on short films, basically. You know, there is that kind of humor. I mean, Rio, you have the fantastic, iconic moments of Simon on the yacht. They're sailing and he's like, the world is my oyster. 
But yet, at other times in the video, you have these mischievous women who are basically tricking the guys and they're like, they're not successful. And so it's kind of, you know, Monty Python-esque almost. There's personality to it too. I think if Rio was just, look at us on our fancy yacht drinking, people would be like, okay, seriously. But there's adventure and curiosity there too. And and it's Hungry Like the Wolf too. It's exciting. And Mm -hmm. you look at MTV video checks from that time and Hungry Like the Wolf comes on after these like boring performance videos. And, you know, Duran Duran were young and good looking. And so I mean, right. that also helped. They had been talking to MTV since even before MTV basically launched. You right. know, they were on MTV and so they were really kind of building that relationship. They were sort of like, look, we're going to help you grow. We're going to give you these amazing videos. And again, it worked. They yes. were smart. They saw the future. Yeah, they really took the form and in many ways it turned it into what we know the music video to be today, which is something more cinematic, has all of these ideas and sort of grand ambitions and setups. I feel like these videos were instrumental in this. Now, I need you to walk us through a little bit the kind of commercial fortunes of this record because it's so fascinating to me. Duran Duran is like, becomes known for at this point, creating numerous versions of all of their songs. There's remixes, there's US version, there's this, that, and the third. So from my understanding, and I, you're going to have to expound on this for me, the record is an instant success in the UK where they've already been successful. But the record uh, once again kind of flops here initially until what exactly happens? You're right. They were super popular in the UK. Everyone got it. In America, it comes out. And if, so it's May of 1982. And debuts on the Billboard chart. They get a positive review in Billboard. Some radio stations start playing it. They come over in June and July and August and do touring. So, you know, they're trying to make it work. But yeah, it basically goes nowhere. You know, Hungry Like Mm -hmm. the Wolf is a single. Doesn't really go anywhere. It was on the rock charts briefly. Didn't really do much. So a lot of different things happened. I mean, first off, they had the songs remixed by David Kirschenbaum. With the intention of making them bigger in America or what? Yes, that's a good question. I should back up and say that. So basically, you know, Duran Duran's label saw they were popular in other markets. The label was behind them. There were all these videos. They're like, we want to make this a success. So they really supported them. And they're like, you know what? They knew that something could happen because they could see. But the band's sound, like the first record, was still so different than basically Mm. what was going on on rock radio. What's interesting is that, you know what, basically songs would go on rock radio and then it would cross over to pop. So they were trying to break Duran Duran at rock radio and it was like Van Halen and Journey and Rush and Fleetwood Mac, which is like not real. And so it just didn't work. But they were like, you know what? I think if we remix the songs a little bit and make it a little bit more Americanized, something might happen. I don't want to say dumb down because they didn't dumb it down. (laughs) It's basically, you know, because Americans were like scared of like the keyboards, basically, Mm. that mainstream America dance music and keyboards was frightening to them on rock music. It was just, I sigh because it's just like, really, guys? But they wanted to kind of emphasize guitars more, have, you know, the Mm -hmm. rhythm up more. They sounded more like, a rock band with the keyboards than kind of a keyboard-driven rock band or a keyboard-driven pop band. So that's what the remixes did, basically. And they put Simon's vocals up more, the guitars were more prominent. So, I mean, you listen to it now and you're like, it's really not that different. That that was my main thing. I went through the whole record and I was like, all right, I guess I got to listen to all the other versions and I'm like literally toggling back and forth on Spotify and I'm like, okay, (laughs) like whatever. Like it's negligible to me. It's so silly from a modern lens to like think about 
how much the acrobatics they had to go through. Yeah. When it's just, it was something so tiny, but yeah. Rio was reissued with remixes by David Kirschenbaum. It right. took until Thanksgiving of 1982 for mm. Hungry Like the Wolf to finally start taking off at rock radio. But the X Factor MTV, over the summer, like July, they were playing the Hungry Like the Wolf video. It was added then. So mm. Duran Duran was ready like super popular on MTV. The video kind of truly integral in their success yes. here. Hungry Like the Wolf hit like in March. I mean, we're talking almost a year wow. since the single actually came out in the UK. That's how long it took. And then Rio finally started hitting big in the spring, but that's how long it took. It took almost a year. But at that point, they become kind of a-list American yeah. pop act. Like following Hungry Like the Wolf's success and then Rio's success and the slew of singles from this record, they become one of the big breakout pop acts of that year, essentially. Correct. Absolutely. What's the critical reception like? Like, are they taken seriously or are they derided? At, at no, they're not taken seriously. I mean, it's actually funny because their records weren't necessarily reviewed. I mean, now when you think about, you know, when records come out, they get reviewed, people look yeah. at them. Very difficult to find reviews of Rio. They all kind of trickled out. But in the UK, I mean, critics, there were some critics that really understood them, but a lot of them just hated them. Like yeah. Simon's lyrics, they just savaged them. Mm. I mean, they just savaged the band. They were not taken critically seriously seriously they were not seen as respectable they were not necessarily compared respectably you know they were seen like i said a video band like we talk about optimism and rockism and it was like yeah you're a video band oh my god that's like not what you want to be so right. that's what they were and the fact that they played towards young women was probably not helpful in that regard so duran duran Massive commercial success following Rio, one of the big breakout acts of the early 1980s. I think seen unfairly, as we pointed out, as something less serious or frivolous or lacking in sort of raucous cred on some level. They quickly follow it up with their third record, Seven and the Ragged Tiger, in 1983. So let's talk about this record a little bit. They released Rio. They tour through the end of 1982. Right. And then it's like, okay, it's 1983. They do a couple shows here and there, but it's basically like, you need to record, you need to make music because we need to have a record out, you know, to capitalize right. on your popularity. Right. And so they put out a stopgap single, Is There Something I Should Know, which was huge, number one in yeah. the UK. they were recording all the time. It's interesting because in hindsight, when you look at it, you're like, you know what? The band probably needed a break. Like they were just yes, being worked I mean. so hard. Is there drugs and stuff going on? Certain people, yeah. And you yeah. know, I'm, I'm not necessarily 100% familiar. I mean, there's so many conflicting stories and 40 years later, people don't remember exactly what was right. going on. But there right. are definitely certain people were indulging a little bit more heavily than others. I mean, it was the 80s, baby, and they were yeah. pop stars. They were not <laughs> alone. No, you know, at that point, people weren't necessarily saying yeah you really shouldn't do cocaine maybe we're gonna die everyone did cocaine it was a party yeah. drug and so yeah, they were course. you know no different how do you think about this record in relation to rio i mean rio's obviously i think still to this day held up as kind of the emblematic duran duran album this album as you said kind of came out very soon after i'm curious how you relate to this album and what you think about it and do you think it adds anything important to the mix and what do you think about it in relationship to rio i mean it's it's hard to compare any album to rio sure 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 <laughs> so i really like this record everyone will basically tell you it was a very difficult record to make and when you mm -hmm. listen to the record with that in mind you hear it it's a weird record because you have the big singles you have new moon on monday 
you mm -hmm. have The Reflex, and you have Union of the Snake, which are these like big, massive pop songs. Sure. But then like Rio, you have these moody moments. You have Tiger Tiger, which is an instrumental, which is they kind love of an like animal reference. jazzy. Exactly. You know, tigers <laughs> all around. Snakes, uh, tigers, yeah, wolves. Exactly. <laughs> so many animals. Taylor yes. Swift had nothing on them. But then you have like, you know, the seventh stranger, kind of this moody ballad again. That's very mm -hmm. deep and kind of brooding. So in a very facile sense, you have the same structure as Rio. You have the obvious pop songs, you have the yes. moodier stuff. But right. the sound of this, it sounds like 1983. They work with different people. They worked with Alex Sadkin and Ian Little. And so there were different producers. It sounded more modern. Rio, I think a lot of times, doesn't necessarily limited by time. And yeah, you know, Seven right. of the Ragged Tiger sounds very 80s. It does. In a way, I felt like it was a doubling down more so than like a giant creative leap forward when I listened to it compared to Rio. I mean, I, I that was my perception of it. Again, I don't have a ton of experience listening to it, but it, it was very clear that there was a Duran Duran sound by the time you got to this album. And like this album reflects that to me in a sense. I would agree with that. I think it's interesting that it's a Duran Duran sound. It's very difficult for people to duplicate that. You know, people right. have tried, but whatever the five of them got together and made music, they made something that sounded like nothing else. And I mean, the great hooks, you know, the reflex has yes. such an incredible hook. I feel like that's such a patented Duran Duran thing, like in the context of all of this other stuff, that's sort of like a through line in all of their music is these sort of undeniable bop hooks. And the reflex to me, it was the one that jumps out on this particular record as like, what are you going to say? This yeah. song is fucking amazing. <laughs> like the hook is perfect. This record, also a huge success in both main marketplaces we've been talking about here, right? Yeah. They're in their imperial phase, so to speak. Abs I love that phrase. Absolutely. Yes. They're in their imperial phase. Right. And they're going on tours, first big American tour since becoming a success. Everything was kind of falling into place. So... This record is huge. They release a series of one-off singles between 84 and 85. They're hits. And like, as we said, Imperial Phase connotes that a pop act is in a phase of its career where basically anything that they do will be successful just by dint of their immense popularity. So Duran Duran is clearly in that phase. They have this song called Wild Boys. Wild Boys And also they have the Bond theme, A View to a Kill, which is one of my personal favorite Duran Duran songs. Dance into the fire. <laughs> Literally the perfect Roger Moore era maximalist cheesy synthesizer 80s Bond theme. 
ever. I love it. Dance into the fire. These are quintessential Duran Duran tropes to me. High stakes metaphors for love and sex and fun. Like, it's just like, I, I don't know. This song feels incredibly like quintessential to me somehow. The oh, I know. I also, love they're perfect for a Bond theme because sex as both alluring and also deadly and dangerous feels like a Duran Duran trope as well. And that's a James Bond trope. Absolutely. In the infamous video, they're on the Eiffel Tower and Simon looks at the camera at the end and like makes kind of a quip about Bond, Simon Le Bond, which is so <laughs> Bond and also so Kim, you know, a perfect video moment. Bond, Simon Le Bond. So aside from these couple stopgap singles and hits, the band actually doesn't record another studio album until 1986's Notorious. So there's three years between Seven and the Ragged Tiger and Notorious. There's various side projects that happen with members of the band to varying levels of success. And there are some intra-band strife as far as I understand it, including that the drummer Roger Taylor, who... I think just becomes exhausted and leaves the group. I believe there's some drug-related things going on that might be creating conflicts, although you said you don't totally know the details on that. But the bottom line is, after this incredibly prolific and hot streak that they were on, there's a bunch of time that elapses between official Duran Duran albums in this mid-80s period. So they return in 86. They're no longer a quintet. They are now a trio. And they come back in 86 with this record, Notorious, that I think notably is produced by Sheik's Nile Rodgers. How does Rodgers' addition to the mix alter the sound of Duran Duran? Yeah, I think everyone knows Nile Rodgers. Like, he is just a master of funk. He really brings a modern swing to Duran Duran. Duran Duran were known as teeny boppers. They were known as a teen band. This was a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more, okay, it's 1986. You know, the early blush of the 80s is over. Pop music has matured. Pop music has definitely evolved beyond what it was when we started. And so Mm -hmm. let's do something that fits in a little bit better. You have a song like Notorious, which is very soulful, very funky. And that's what this record is. It's kind of a grown up record. What's interesting to me about this is that this, with the addition of Nile Rodgers on the production here, really brings the disco influence on Duran Duran from something sort of subterranean in the mix to very, very forward. I mean, this has a very funky disco, but with an 80s sheen vibe that Nile Rodgers was bringing to a lot of his productions during this period. I also wonder if some of maybe like the stink of the disco backlash had worn off here on some degree because Notorious, it doesn't sound like a disco song of like 1978, but it's very disco forward. Yes. And obviously any song with Nile playing on it is going to have that specific guitar disco lick feel to it. He does have a very distinctive style. He was such a good mix for Duran Duran because Niall has such a distinctive style himself that when yeah. you hear that, you're like, oh, that's totally Niall Rogers playing guitar. Right. The lyrics are still kind of obscure. They're kind of grappling with politics. They're grappling with culture. They're grappling with getting older. Like, yeah. There's a lot of searching on this too. Yeah. You know, it's one of those records they're trying to figure out, okay, where do we go next? The early 80s is over. The Duran Beatlemania is over. Yeah. This does feel like a pivot on numerous levels, like both lyrically and sonically. And my understanding of this, though, is that this record is 
a pretty big commercial come down from the early 80s Duran Duran swing. Is that a correct characterization? Yes and no. Still right. hit the top 20 in right. the US and the UK. It wasn't top 10. You know, yeah. Notorious was a hit, but it definitely wasn't guaranteed. It wasn't right. necessarily like, oh, okay, you know, definitely a Duran Duran record. Okay, we're going to have a lot of hits here. It was definitely... The imperial phase was over, so to speak. Yes, exactly. They were still playing big venues and they were still on MTV. You know, music in the 80s evolved so quickly and bands really had to get with it or get left behind. This was kind of the first wake up call. It's like, wow, things have really moved. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you feel like Rio and the third record have like a fleet of singles. It just feels like they're so in the zeitgeist. Just looking at the charts, it felt like a little bit of their grip on the center of popular music had slid slightly in this period. And I wonder if you can even see that in relation to the way that the next two records performed. They release two records, 1988's The Big Thing and 1990. Liberty, those are real kind of commercial lull for Duran Duran, right? They are. I Don't Want Your Love on Big Thing was a top five hit. But it was definitely like they were finding their place. Yeah. I think those records have aged better. And right. pop music is so fickle that at that point, it was Stock Aiken Waterman. It's Kylie Minogue. It's, you know, right. Debbie Gibson and right. Teen Pop and New Kids on the Block. Yeah. That's what was dominating for Teen Pop. Duran Duran's Die Hard stuck with them, but it was definitely challenging. Let's put it that way. Pop really morphed throughout the 80s, like in a pretty radical way. Yes. By the time you're dealing with albums like Bad and Rhythm Nation 18, 1914 oh, and Like a Prayer and these humongous statement piece pop albums. Pop had grown from the sort of embryonic version that we think of it as now in the early 80s. By the 90s, it's something so entirely grander. I'm interested in how perhaps Duran Duran is perceived during this period. Do you feel like they're sort of seen as over essentially by the time 1990 mm -hmm. hits? I think a lot of people did view them that way. They were still getting TV performances. They were still yeah, like right. videos played. Right. And overseas, I think they were still a lot more popular than in America. Right. Do you think that because they had been pegged so heavily as like a teen pop act, the audience had trouble adjusting to them maturing? Like, was that a hard pivot for them to make? I think for casual fans, absolutely. You know, I yeah. think people who were really diehard supporters, like understood what they were doing because they really followed the band. But people were just like, you know, what are you trying to do? If you're perceived as a pop band, I mean, or a teen pop band, teen pop bands are not supposed to have long lives. Yeah, They're no, supposed right. to be short and burn out and okay, that's it. You know, right. let's, let's move on to the next thing. And they weren't perceived as a band that should should have longevity, like a band, like a rock band, right. someone like the Rolling Stones exactly. or someone like David right. Bowie. You know, they weren't allowed to evolve. Yeah, it's like in a way, actually, some of this critical discourse that we've been touching on throughout this conversation actually like had material effects on their commercial yeah. success in that sense. Now, I love a story with a happy ending. I would say Duran Duran, The Wedding Album, which comes out in 93, is perhaps one of the most improbable comeback albums yes. of all time, right? I mean, considering everything we just laid out for everybody about the way that this band seemed like it was probably a has-been many years before this. Now, talk to me about maybe how their approach shifted here. Like, how did they come up with something so successful after having such a long fallow period? When you're a band that basically everyone has written you off and have no expectations, then it's <laughs> like, we're going to do whatever we want because right. why not? You have nothing to lose at that point. Right. The industry was just like, oh, okay, whatever. 
whatever, Duran Duran. Duran Duran has always, when you look at their career, even going back to Hungry Like the Wolf, when they're underdogs, when people say, you're not going to be a success, no one right. wants that. That right. just fires them up even more to say, mm. we're going to show you wrong. There's a little bit of like, we're going to make the record we want to make. You listen to this record and it's not going for the commercial brass ring. No. It's very 1993. It's very electronic yes. music. There's a cover of Femme Fatale. Uh -huh. You know, I re-listened to it today and I'm just like, this is such a cool sounding record, but it doesn't scream blockbuster hit to you. And that's the beauty of Duran Duran is that they basically bet pop culture to their will time and time and time again. I mean, they did do a very good job of bringing their strengths into new aesthetic contexts. Yes. Like this does not feel like it's nodding at their early 80s work in any overt ways. I mean, the song craft, yes, like the core fundamental musicianship and all of that stuff is there. But this record doesn't sound like the vibes of Rio. I mean, I almost was getting Moby a little bit on like a love voodoo. And on Come Undone, I almost had whiffs of Kylie Minogue's kind of like mid-90s experimental phase like confide in me a little bit. Yep. That's what's also so improbable about this is that, you know, when you have bands that make comebacks, you know, after a lull, they're usually drawing from a similar well and it's familiar what people want to listen to. Right. And if you flop and flop and flop, you might have this impetus to just go back and try to recreate what made you popular in the first place. And they're absolutely not doing that. No. They're not like saying, we're going to make Rio part two. They're making no. Ordinary World, which is this beautiful ballad inspired by a childhood friends of Simon who had passed away. He wrote a trilogy of songs. Ordinary World is one of them. And it's just this beautiful. Song. Yeah. But I won't cry for yesterday. There's an ordinary world. Somehow I have to find. And as I try to make my way to the ordinary world, I will learn to survive. It's almost become their signature song. 15 years after they formed, what band has this amazing... It's so crazy. It's so improbable. I almost am sitting here thinking as you're talking, like, did the old Duran Duran, like, have to die for this to happen? You know what I mean? Like, it almost is like you had to kind of, like, create a stopgap between this teen band that they were known as in the early 80s. Because this music, like, Ordinary World is a very serious song. This is, as you said, it's dealing with very adult themes. So if we were talking about earlier that maybe audiences had trouble accepting them trying to get into more mature music in the mid and late 80s, perhaps letting them disappear from consciousness allowed them to re-enter and on the strength of their song craft in new contexts, like just almost establish themselves as a new band. This was my entry point. I was in junior high. Like I'm a fan that didn't have any of the baggage of, oh, they were not popular in the late right. 90s. Right. Or, you know, oh, they were this band in the 80s. You know, I came to them musically. Ordinary World was like, oh, there's this band Duran Duran and they have all these other cool songs. This is cool. And yeah. alternative radio right. in the 
the 80s, MTV helped them. In the early 90s and early and mid 90s, alternative radio had a massive resurgence because of Nirvana and Duran Duran fit finally. They had a place to go. Ordinary World, of course, crossed over to the pop radio. But alternative radio was like Duran Duran. Sure, that sounds great because they played all of those 80s bands. That's where all of those bands, they finally had kind of a little niche. And so Duran Duran were able to slip in there too and have new songs and older songs. It was another kind of perfect storm in that sense. There's something about having enough knocks, commercial knocks to a pop act where they finally just go, fuck it. And like, they just do what they want to do. And like, there's a freedom that comes with that, that I often have found in these discussions that comes up time and again, that then accidentally leads them to the success they've been tight about on previous flops. (laughs) Like, that makes sense. (laughs) Absolutely. And I mean, the ambition was always there, but they were like, we know we need to do something different. And people were not rooting for them. There was so much, you know, they're over, whatever. They were like, well, okay, well, we're just gonna do what we want to do then. All right. I mean, there's something poetic about a band that had its commercial fortunes nuked by trying to make mature music coming back with decidedly mature music and having it be their biggest hits ever. There's just something funny and great about that as like a bookend to their story at the center of pop music. Absolutely. Um, So that's kind of like the last moment I feel like where Duran Duran is a huge sort of like central pop music force. Is that, are you going to, are you going to quibble with me on that? I, <laughs> I will actually. No, so it, it, it's funny because yes and no again. So yeah. they follow up this big record with a covers record. People hated mm-hmm. it. Critics savaged it. So they put out Medazzaland, which was 1997, which was this electronic record. And again, it's kind of like a mirror image of what happened at the end of the 80s. You know, the end of the 90s, things were just not great. They put out Pop Trash, this album in 2000, not that great. And so they were all sort of at a lull. But then in the early 2000s, they get back together with Andy Taylor. Mm. And the Fab Five, as they call it, gets back together. And basically, it was the second resurgence. They were playing massive venues. People were so excited. And so they went on this tour. They released the record. And so they were pretty popular again. For the last 15 years, it's funny because they've released a bunch of records that have been really interesting. You know, you have Red Carpet Massacre, Justin Timberlake's on the record, Timbaland's on the record. Right. Oh, my God. I totally forgot about that. They work with Mark Ronson on All You Need Is Now. And Mark is like an unbelievable Duran Duran fan. He has like the receipts from, hey, here's me in 1984 wearing my John Taylor hat. You know, I mean, oh he was like- Oh my God, I it's very love cute. that. That makes a it's lot of sense, cute. actually. You have the last decade then. And so they, you know, they've been touring and touring. And what's happened is that there's been sort of this critical resurgence and this critical turnaround. As a longtime fan, it's been very gratifying to see because yeah. you almost had to defend being a Duran Duran fan. You almost had to be like, you know, no, 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 you guys, this is cool. They're cool here's why because as we've talked about they were so derided and people would kind of sneer at them and there was just this weird antagonism toward them for like 
no apparent reason. Is there a modern comp that could maybe help our audience understand that? It's almost like One Direction in a way. I'm a big fan of One Direction and all the individual members and Mm -hmm. Harry Styles. I've seen like five concerts since the pandemic and one of them is Harry Styles. They're all very talented musicians individually. They've written songs. They've all done their own thing. And they they didn't get any credit because it's like, oh, you're a prefab boy band from X Factor. Okay, But they were prefab and Duran Duran wasn't, which is the only reason I would be tempted not to make that comp. And that is true. And that is completely true because people thought Duran Duran were prefab and they're like, no, we're not. I mean, this isn't a perfect comp, but there's a lot of people outside of the pop world. And it's so weird to say this because obviously she's the biggest star on the fucking planet Earth. But I can't tell you how often I find myself sort of having to defend Taylor Swift in terms of just like, actually, yeah, she did write all these songs like by her fucking self. You'd be surprised given that she's the most famous lady on the planet, how few people seem to actually understand that and how much there's like sort of this deep desire to like defend that to them. I wonder if there's shades of that on some level. Like people who aren't enough in the know don't understand that she's not just another pop girly. She's there's something very like unique and special about her music talent. That's actually a really good parallel because I'm also a huge Taylor Swift fan and I get so irritated by people who are like, yeah, oh no, someone else writes her music and oh, that's the producer doing that. Yeah, no, she writes her own music. Now I think that's actually a really good parallel. It's like only now I feel like are we finally, thank God, not just like inherently poo-pooing things that are appealing to young women. I mean, it's like maybe now we've gone through enough of like a rejiggering of our views on these things that we don't just like inherently look down on even just things that are wildly popular. I mean, I think that probably hurt Duran Duran in a weird way in terms of the cred they might have been seeking out too is that they were just fucking gigantic. And, you know, I think especially in the 80s and 90s, it just simply could not be envisioned that you might like something that was also liked by like masses of kids. I think there is thankfully a loosening of that in modern times. And maybe that's helped Duran Duran's legacy. So why are they important? What is their legacy? Looking back on all of this stuff, what is Duran Duran's legacy? Why are they so important to the history of pop music? They deeply understood how the visual aesthetic and the musical aesthetic kind of intertwined. Everything was all well thought out, but everything was also very connected. They understood how music video could enhance the songs. Right. They wrote such good songs. It was very interesting looking at the people and genres and generations they've influenced who've counted them as fans. I mean, you have Jonathan Davis of Korn. Mm. You have Billy Corgan of Smashing Pumpkins. You have mm. Courtney Love. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have Mark Ronson. You have the members of Blur. Lady Gaga likes Duran Duran. Definitely. You know, and- I mean, there's so much 80s revivalism all the time in pop music, and they're so emblematic, both sonically and aesthetically, of that period that whether implicitly or explicitly, you are influenced and drawing on Duran Duran if you're doing that. And I mean, the killers. I can't believe I didn't mention the killers. The killers! I mean, Brandon Flowers, my God. God, hello. Yeah. But just also there's a personal relationship. I mean, I think one of the most touching things is hearing how fans, how the records mean to them. People are like, when I was with my friend growing up, we would talk about Duran Duran. We would go see them. We'd listen to the music. So there was kind of that sharing element. There's couples who share Duran Duran. Their music has been used for funerals. It's been used for weddings. You can put them on when you're ready to kind of go out and dance and have a good time. But if you're, I'm having kind of a bad day and I need some comfort, there's a Duran Duran song. There's so many different moods to it. 
it. They don't necessarily get a ton of credit for that sometimes, but that's a special band that can have that range of emotions too. I love that. I would also throw in the intersection of rock history and technology. I feel like that is a huge element that struck me going back through this music as somewhat of a neophyte, but I just was really struck by the way that they were obviously drawing on some of their rock influences, but also felt free from them and like they were ready to adventure into this new decade of music, of technology, of dance music, of differing aesthetics. And I think their brazenness in doing so is a huge part of their legacy. And they've come out on the right side of that. For whatever they may have been derided for, for ditching some traditional rock values, they've come out on the right side of history of that. And I would throw that into the mix too. All right, so let's talk about the Pop Pantheon here. Oh, yes. Okay. I got to just ask you. I have my thought, but where do you think Duran Duran belongs in my little Pop Pantheon over here? So my gut is that they potentially might be the megastar tier. It's megastar or tier 3A. Why I'm kind of waffling in between is that when you kind of look at the megastar tier, casual pop fans... They've reached a point where I think there are enough younger fans. I mean, one of the things that didn't come up is that it is unbelievable to me how many younger, younger fans they have, like kids Mm -hmm. and teenagers Mm -hmm. and 20-something. Even though they were popular initially 40 years ago, they've really kind of transcended. They're touring arenas right now. They're doing three nights at the Hollywood Bowl. They release Uh new music now to be at least a highly covered story, if not necessarily commercial success. They got so much press last year for Future Past. I mean, they really? had a new record out. Oh my goodness. I missed yeah. that. Generation defining. Absolutely. Definitely, At least one successful reinvention. Not. Yes, they have that. That's for sure. So, I mean, to me, and granted I'm biased, but to me it's a megastar. Yeah. Or the other one I'm waffling on is Superstars the three. and more. I was going to go for three. Let me talk about three for a second. So three, one of three albums, five to 10 genuine smash hits. That seems short on them because I feel like if we're really talking about like their definitive hit albums, what are we talking about? Rio, third record, Notorious? That's the thing is that it's hard to tell. It's like, what area are we talking about? You know, if we're talking about the UK, it's like, okay, so they have, you know, four or five. You know, US, yeah. it's like, okay, they have this many. I mean, it's- Let me tell you, Eddie, we do run into this problem of international versus US quite a bit. <laughs> yes. And let me tell you, the listeners do not hold back on letting me know <laughs> that America is not the world and that my American biases are distorting my view of things for some reason i feel drawn towards tier three in america they're tier three maybe and in uk they're like tier two does that i mean they're they're playing hyde park i mean if that's any indication i mean they're headlining head park which is huge i'm just thinking about when i looked at their billboard chart history they do fall into this tier three thing of like five to ten genuine hits i would say yes i'd say that 10 hits like if i could count them out in america at least Rio and then maybe the wedding album are like the definitive Duran Duran albums. I would agree with that. Very well known and meaningful to anyone who's of prime age during their moment. Obviously, yes. Beef to Arsenal of hits they can still tour on. Obviously, yes. Even if they're far past their peak. Continues to release critically regarded work. I feel like you spoke to that. Would you accept two international, three America? Reluctantly. I almost feel like it needs like a (laughs) 2.5. I feel like you need another tier. You need like a 2.5. I think it's going to be interesting to see after the Rock Hall induction what happens too. Right. Because Def Leppard are headlining stadiums with Motley Crue. Yeah. And they were inducted a few years ago. I don't know. It's weird. I feel that I have to say three 
Coming into this, I will admit that my knowledge of them felt so fleeting and I tend to trust myself as some form of a barometer for these things and that's why I just don't feel like I can put them there. And I'm willing to throw the two international thing out there because maybe that just has to do with my American bias, but I can't go with the t- I, I I have to say three here, two international based on what you've told me. I would agree with that. I, I can live okay. with that. My last question for you before I release you from my clutches is what is an underrated Duran Duran song? Something we haven't spoken about yet that we could send the podcast out on. One, maybe a personal fave. So on All You Need Is Now, there's this song called Girl Panic. It's such a fun song. There's a music video with all sorts of literal supermodels. And it's very funny because they're sort of taking the piss out of themselves. So the supermodels are like pretending to be the band members. The band members are playing journalists, like interviewing the supermodels as themselves. It's very high concept, very funny. But the song is great. The song is just synth rock song with great groove. And I just, I love it. It's one of my, I think, favorite kind of later day Duran Duran song. Incredible. Let's go out on that. Annie Zaleski, thank you so, so much for being here. I had such a blast. Thank you for having me. All right, so there you have it, Duran Duran, Tier 3 Superstars, The Judgment is Rendered. I want to say thank you so much to the wonderful Annie Zaleski for being such a fabulous guest. Make sure you hop in the Discord and let me know what you think about Duran Duran. If you learned anything interesting in this episode, if you have any thoughts or anecdotes to share, follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. Follow me at DJ L O U I E X I V. Get the Spotify playlist in the show notes and on social media. I want to say this. I don't say it enough. Thank you so much to Russ Martin for all of the support he provides in making this show happen. It would not be possible without him. Come out to Gorgeous Gorgeous July 16th at Resident. I hope to see you guys there. And until next time, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye.